If you have a Bible, I invite you to turn to 2 Thessalonians chapter 3. We are, uh, we're finishing up our study in 2 Thessalonians this morning. We've been in this study. This is now the sixth week. And uh, then next week, we've got a response Sunday. The Sunday after that, so in two weeks on Palm Sunday, we'll begin a uh, 12-week study in the book of Ephesians. So if you want to start reading ahead, you can do that. that and we'll, uh, we'll get information on the journals and whatever we're going to do. I also wanted to say, I know some of you were concerned last week uh, because I tend to be, you know, really funny, super funny. I'm very funny, but it was hard last week as you were watching the live stream because it's an empty room here. Uh, he just doesn't have the same vibe. So this week I downloaded this, uh, I downloaded this app that I think will be really helpful. And I put it on my phone. Can you hear that? Isn't that nice? So I'm going to keep it here on my stand. And anytime I say something that I think is witty, then I'll just shake the app and make it work. Okay, now I have to turn that off or it's going to make me crazy. Um, I, just a laugh track. I thought, actually, my mom texted me last week and said, Darren, you need a laugh track. So when mom says it, you know it's true. Um, this is a tricky text. So we talked last week about God's timing and the fact that he lined up the beginning of chapter three at a perfect time for us as we were starting to socially isolate and we were in our homes doing this live stream thing. This one uh, at the end of chapter three is also ordained and lined up by God, especially relevant, I think, for us in this particular time, even though as Hannah read it a second ago, some of you may have felt a little unsettled. It's a little hard at first to read a text like this last section in Second Thessalonians chapter three that talks about a warning to those who are idle and also speaks to the church with an admonition for what to do with those who are idle, particularly in a season where I think we're all feeling idle. We're being required in some ways by the government to stay home and kind of twiddle our thumbs and just sort of kind of figure it out. It, it's heavy to take this text and feel like, well, what does this mean to me? It's very important as we come here today that you understand a couple of things about the text, that you understand what Paul is trying to affirm here, what he's admonishing against. We're going to walk through it verse by verse uh, so that we can get a sense of what he's saying and what he isn't saying. I want to I comfort you here at the very outset of the teaching to say that what Paul is talking about here is, is certainly not related uh, to the fact that we've been quarantined to some degree that we've been asked to remain socially isolated and stay in our homes as best we can. Uh, this isn't talking about that kind of idleness, and we'll talk about it more as we go. But remember, as we've worked our way through 2 Thessalonians, we've, we've reminded ourselves that Paul is writing to comfort this new church at Thessaloniki. He's comforting them in a couple of broad categories. In chapter one, he comforts them in the midst of persecution. He reminds them that Jesus will come back, that he will administer justice, that he will give them rest. In chapter two, he comforts them in the midst of false teaching. He says, don't let your yourself be deceived and don't be stirred up and alarmed by people who purport to be of God but aren't of God. Remember what you've been taught and remember what you've read. Remember the things you've heard. Remember that God is faithful. So he comforts them in the midst of persecution. He comforts them in the midst of uh, false teaching in their, in their hearts and minds. And then in chapter three, at the end of the section we read last week in verse five, remember he's, he prayed for them. May the Lord direct your hearts to the love of God and to the steadfast of Christ. He does that right after he said to them, I am confident in the Lord about you that you are already doing and will continue to do the things which I've commanded you. In this text we're studying this morning, he's going to use that word command several times, which feels a little bossy and feels a little forceful, but it's kind of got a militaristic, uh, it's kind of got a militaristic bent to it. The word command he's using almost as a, uh, as a sergeant in charge or as a leader of a group of soldiers. He's saying there are some things here 
here that are expected of you. And, and he uses the word command because he wants us to understand these things aren't optional. As he has just said, I'm praying that the Lord will direct your hearts to the love of God and to the steadfastness of Christ. Then he moves into this third concern, which is to comfort them in the midst of their ongoing steadfastness and the love of God. This that's being worked out in them. He says he's heard reports, and we know this is even true from 1 Thessalonians. He's heard reports of them that there are some in their group who are not working, but have become idle. Some who are not contributing. Now, right out of the gate, uh, as he starts to comfort them and encourage them in the midst of this problem, and he's going to admonish both the church and those who are idle, as he starts to admonish them, we have to understand right out of the gate here, this this word that's used in the text about idleness isn't just the way we typically think about idleness. That's not all that it means. The word that's translated idleness in this text is the Greek word atoktos, atoktos. And I don't want to get too bogged down in the Greek, but the word there originally means disorderly or out of line or out of step. It's kind of a militaristic word that would be used for soldiers that were marching in rank and file. Or if if you're a marching band nerd like me, which I've admitted to you before, that's nothing new. You understand that in marching band, it's important that we keep all of our steps in line so that we can maintain a sense of uniformity. When he says here, I want to warn you about those in your community who are idle, or when he talks about distancing yourself from those who are idle, the word that's translated idle in English doesn't really mean what what we think it means when we normally think of idle. It doesn't just mean as one who is a loafer, one who is lazy, or one who refuses to work. Now, we will see in the context that he does refer to those who are loafing and who are idle and who refuse to work, but the overarching concern for Paul in this last section is not just for people who are lazy, but rather those in the body, brothers. He uses familial language a lot in here. So not only does he command us, and not only does he, does he talk about the fact that there's an expectation that we will live and work in a particular way, but he talks several times. There's three or four times in this text where he refers both to, to the church as his brothers, but also to those who are in violation as brothers. So there's familial language, there's also militaristic language, but what he's addressing here is this stepping out of line or this stepping out of order. He says we have to be on guard against those who are are disorderly. And he doesn't just mean chaotic. He means that they're not maintaining the form. This is an idleness that ruins the formation. It paints a false picture. So he talks about this idleness here. He talks about brotherhood. And he's referring specifically in the text to the example that he himself has set. So I want us to look really quickly here at just the first few verses. Let's look at verse 6 together in the text. This is 2 Thessalonians 3, 6. He says, now we command you, brothers, in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, that you keep away from any brother. There's that familial language. You keep away from any brother who is walking in idleness. That means who's walking out of line or walking in disorder. You keep away from any brother who's walking in disorder and not in accord with the tradition that you receive from us. We talked earlier in this study about the fact that those traditions are the things that Paul has already articulated and the things that we find in the scriptures, right? They're not walking in accord or in line with the things that you've been taught. Verse 7. For you yourselves know, and now he's talking about himself, for you yourselves know how you ought to imitate us. Because we were not idle when we were with you, nor did we eat anyone's bread without paying for it, but with toil and labor we worked night and day that we might not be a burden to any of you. It was not because we did not have that right, but to give you in ourselves an example 
to imitate. For even when we were with you, we would give you this command, if anyone is not willing to work, let him not eat. Now we have to be really careful when we look at this. The first thing Paul's going to do is say, I, I not only set you an example, I said some particular things. He says in verse 10, we told you this when we were among you. So that goes all the way back to Acts 17, when he was first planting this church at Thessaloniki. He says, when I was among you, I told you there's a certain way that we have to live, a certain way we want to march in step. And we ourselves were not out of step. We were not idle, he says here. We weren't disorderly. We marched in accord with the traditions that we've laid out. And the way in which we did that was, was by working hard. Now, I want to I be clear when we talk about this hard work, or even in the text here where it says in verse 8, we didn't eat anyone's bread without paying for it. The idea there is we didn't eat anyone's bread for nothing. So it's not necessarily about remuneration or about, you know, I pay you 10 bucks for the bread I ate off your table. There's a thing we have to remember about the culture of the body of Christ. We see it in Acts chapter 2. In fact, if you go to Acts chapter 2, uh, verses 44 and 45, speaking about the early church, it says, all who believed were together and had all things in common. They were selling their possessions and belongings and distributing the proceeds to all as any had need. In Acts chapter 20, verse 34, Paul says to the leaders of the church at Ephesus, he says, you yourselves know that these hands ministered to my necessities and to those who were with me. In all things I have shown you that by working hard in this way, we must help the weak and remember the words of the Lord Jesus, how he himself said, it is more blessed to give than to receive. In Ephesians 4, verse 28, Paul says, let the thief no longer steal, but rather let him labor, doing honest work with his own hands so that he may have something to share with anyone in need. What we want to remind ourselves is that the, the, the kind of order or the kind of step that the Christian community is called to march in, right? If we're called to march in file, the kind of order that we're called to march in is an order of a unity and sacrifice. It's a caring for one another. So when we come to 2 Thessalonians chapter 3 and he talks about working hard for what he would eat, understand that what he's talking about is that he did not take without making a contribution himself. That there is a call for all of us who are followers of Jesus Christ to be giving and sharing among one another. In Acts chapter 2, it talks about the fact that they had all things in common. They were selling what they had to care for the needs of anyone who had an issue. So the call here isn't, hey, you work and you eat what you earn. The call is you work so that you can make a contribution to those who are in need, to the good of the body. And what he's seeing at the church in Thessaloniki here is that there are those who are kind of freeloading on the grace of the church of Christ. That there are those who are out of line or out of order. And there's all kinds of reasons why people think maybe they were out of order. Some of them, some theologians will suggest that they had opted out of contributing, that they'd opted out of working because they had kind of a Greco-Roman mindset that looked down on manual labor. There are some who will say they opted out of working because they were so confident of the imminent return of Jesus that they felt like, why should we bother contribute? If Jesus is just coming back, then it doesn't really matter. Uh, we still see Christians today that sometimes have that mindset when it comes to environmentalism or caring for the planet or caring for their neighbors. They have this mindset where they opt out of caring. But listen, the early church was defined by painting a picture of the sacrifice of Christ. It's why it's in our mission statement as a church. We are called to be united in sacrifice. Why? Is it just that the idea of, of sacrifice is a, is a good idea? No, it's that we are revealing Christ. We paint a picture both to one another and to the broader community in our hard work and our labor. So Paul here in this passage talking about his own example, he says we labored night and day. This is verse 7. We labored night and day to avoid 
a burden and to make a contribution. We didn't want to be a burden on you, and so we were working night and day. We know that Paul, if you look at Acts 18, we know that Paul was a tent maker. And so what he's describing here is that not only is he doing the ongoing work of preaching the gospel, praying for the needs of other people, caring for the weak, He's not only planting churches and traveling and doing these mission endeavors, he's not only caring and loving for the body, but he's also working on the side so that he can make a contribution to the needs of everyone, right? He is putting something into the pot is essentially what he's saying. I haven't become idle or disorderly. I'm walking in step. In my house, there's kind of a funny thing that happens. Um, maybe I'll have to get my phone app here. I'll, I'll decide if it's funny or not. Um, in my house, there's a funny thing that happens, but when we finish dinner, I, I want the whole family to kind of chip in and help with the dishes and the cleanup, right? Somebody's gonna take the leftovers and put them into a, you know, into a Tupperware thing. Somebody's gonna wash the dishes. Somebody's gonna wash the counter. You probably have a similar setup in your own house. I got four kids, uh, so there are six of us. Right now, as we're all at home, uh, there are six of us who can contribute to the cleaning up after dinner, right? But inevitably, what happens in our house is that when I go, okay, guys, you all had pork chops or whatever. Now it's time to chip in and clean up. Inevitably, there'll be like one or two who are like, you know what? I really have to go to the bathroom. And then they disappear for the longest bathroom trip I've ever seen in my life, right? Or, or one of them will launch into a long story. And I'm like, hey, this is a really interesting story. But I need you to like also grab the dishcloth and start wiping the counter. And they're like, no, no, no. I'm going to do that as soon as I finish my story. And I'm like, no, no, no. I appreciate the story, but do it while you work. Or if you have to go to the bathroom, make it quick. Or maybe hold it until later or whatever. Because knowing, knowing who I am, this is a genetic thing, by the way. I remember when I was a teenager, and I remember when my mom asked me to do things, and I did this exact same thing. It was this mindset that decided to sort of leverage the service of others for the ease of my own life. Does that make sense? So you take off and go to the bathroom or you launch into a long story so that you don't have to contribute. Paul is saying, hey, when we, were, when we were among you, we set you an example. Not only were we doing the work of the gospel, not only were we preaching and planting churches, but we were laboring night and day. This was a nonstop issue so that we could make a contribution. We set that as an example. He says in verse 10, we also told you when we were with you that this is the way to live. And if we even just look at the epistles, so we look at First and Second Thessalonians, he's now writing this to them. So they have it in three different forms. They have it in, in the traditions that have been passed on through his writings. We see that in, um, in First Thessalonians, just to give you an example. First Thessalonians 4, 9 and following says, Now concerning brotherly love, you have no need for anyone to write to you, for you yourselves have been taught by God to love one another. For that indeed is what you were doing to all the brothers throughout Macedonia. But we urge you, brothers, to do this more and more, and to aspire to live quietly, and to mind your own affairs, and to work with your hands as we instructed you, so that you may walk properly before outsiders and be dependent on no one. That you may walk properly before outsiders and be dependent on no one. He says, work quietly with your hands, be diligent, so that you can make a contribution. You're not dependent on anybody else but you're giving and you're also staying in great relationship with other people. In 1 Thessalonians chapter 5 at the end in verse 14, he says, we urge you brothers, admonish the idle, 
Encourage the faint-hearted. Help the weak and be patient with them all. He's doing the very thing that he encouraged them to do the first time he wrote to them. So, so what Paul's essentially saying is not only did I set this as an example, I taught it to you and I've written it to you. You must be in step. You must get in line because when you get out of line, you paint a false picture of who Christ is. Christ is not a freeloader. Christ is not a loafer. He is not idle. He is sacrificial for the good of others. I think I was thinking this week about uh, when I was a kid, we used to get Highlights Magazine. Do you ever get Highlights Magazine? A lot of times on the front cover of Highlights Magazine, they would have a thing called, What's Wrong with This Picture? Um, the artist that did a lot of those was a guy named Chuck Dillon. I, I don't know if we have a copy. I, I downloaded one of those. Do we have one of those or no? Did you get that? Yes? No? Put it up. And so you'll get these pictures, maybe, no? Doesn't matter. Look, look how bald I am. It's fine. Uh, you get these pictures and, it, and it'll say, you know, what's wrong with this? And there'll be, the picture I downloaded earlier, you can find these online, is a picture of like uh, a baggage claim at an airport. But there's like, you know, there's like a mouse and he's rowing a canoe in the middle of the conveyor belt and somebody's built a tree house on one side. There's all kinds of weird stuff in the picture. The picture is disrupted. There we go. See, there's a, a robot with his head off. There's a guy with a dog sled down here. You look at this picture and the longer you look at it, you realize there are all kinds of things wrong with it, right? Kids, you can freeze frame that and come back to it later if you want. What Paul is saying here is that when we refuse to contribute, when we don't work quietly, when we don't stay active in in both mission and love and in labor, that we paint a picture that is wrong about who Jesus is. That we paint a picture that is wrong about what the church is meant to be, and then when people look at us, they have a sense of like, something's wrong with that picture. Why is there a treehouse in the middle of the airport, right? So he says, I've set you an example, I've taught you these things, and I've written them to you in the Letter. So then he speaks to those who are out of line. Look specifically with me at verses 11 and 12 of 2 Thessalonians chapter 3. In verses 11 and 12 he says, For we hear that some among you walk in idleness. Now remember, every time you see the word idleness here, it means disorder or out of line. He says, We hear that some among you walk in disorder or walk out of line, not busy at work, but busybodies. There's a play on words there, both in the English and in the Greek. He's saying you're not busy, you're not diligent, you're not working quietly with your hands, which is what we told you in 1 Thessalonians and what we modeled to you when we were there, but instead you're busybodies. Now, 1 Timothy will give us a little insight into the idea of busybodies. We won't turn there this morning, but the idea is of being meddlesome, of being uh, noisy, uh, of meddling in other people's business, being noisy and nosy, right? Uh, And in some ways kind of being a parasite. He says instead of being diligent, Instead of being industrious or working hard to paint the right picture of Jesus and to contribute to the needs of everyone else, instead you're just kind of loafing for one reason or another. So he is talking about idleness here. He says, we've heard this. Now, I thought it was interesting as I studied this week. Earlier in the book, remember, he's talked about all the great things he's hearing about them that they're growing in their faith, that their love is increasing and abounding. It's interesting here that he's not only hearing great things about them, he's also hearing some troubling things about them. That there are people in their midst who've become disorderly, who are painting a false picture because they 
refuse to work. And it's also important to note here that this isn't just talking about people who can't work. In fact, it's, it's not at all talking about people who can't work or who may not work, right? We're in the middle of this, uh, this kind of lockdown for the health of our neighbors and the health of our country and our world. This isn't talking about a, an order from the governor or an order from, from the local authorities that are saying, you can't work at your restaurant or you can't open up your shop or you can't go to work. This isn't talking about people who can't work or people who may not work or being required not to work, it says specifically in verse 10 that it's talking about those who will not work. 2 Thessalonians chapter 3, um, if it, even when we were with you, we gave you this command, if anyone is not willing to work. The idea there is a willingness. It's a desire. When someone is opted out of working hard, then they paint a false picture. So he comes to 11 and he says, for we hear that some among you walk in idleness or disorder. You're not busy at work, but you're busybodies. And he speaks directly to them here in 12. He says, now such persons we command and encourage in the Lord Jesus Christ to do their work quietly and to earn their own living. To do their work quietly and to make a contribution, right? To do their work quietly and to make a contribution. I think it's very interesting in this season that we're in, uh, where we're being required to stay at home except for essential things, uh, where we're being required to socially isolate. This is a season in which it would have been very easy for many of us and many in our community to become idle and out of step with the picture of Christ that we are called to paint. It would be easy for us to just sort of stay at home and disconnect and not do anything. And maybe there are some of you who are listening today who've kind of felt like that's happening in the last week. But I will tell you, as a guy who is getting emails every day and hearing stories every day, I will tell you that in this particular community, the community of Fullerton Free, there are many who've been far less than idle or disorderly. There are so many people in our community that are painting a beautiful picture of Christ in their refusal to be idle, even even though they're isolated, even though they may be at home. I mean, we've got people who have used that Zoom platform Scott was talking about to set up Bible studies. I heard a story this morning about people who tried to play Yahtzee last night in a game night, but there are other game nights happening with adult fellowships. We got prayer times set up via FaceTime or Facebook Messenger or Google Meetups or Zoom. There are all kinds of great things happening. We started that social hour this week. So twice this week, I just got to meet with people. We prayed for each other. We looked into each other's eyes. We were reminded that we're a family. I've heard stories this week of people in their neighborhoods printing up pieces of paper and uh, giving out their email address and saying, hey, if you need prayer or if you need groceries or you need somebody to run to CVS for you, I can do that. I've heard stories about people who ordered a bunch of flowers and made bundles and took them to each neighbor's doorstep and just said, hey, we see you and we love you, building relationships even at a distance. I've heard great stories this week about delivering groceries. We've got bags of food that people have been coming to pick up, and those were all assembled by folks this week who came down, paid close attention to the orders that have been given to us, but even in the distancing that was required, we're able to assemble bags of groceries that we were able to distribute to other people. It hasn't all just been technology either. I've heard stories of people making phone calls. I know, it seems so weird, right? But that old technology, you guys remember it, the telephone, remember that? We've had hundreds of people make phone calls, personal phone calls this week. I did about 20 of those myself just to call people and go, hey, you don't know me very well, but I love you and we go to the same church and I just want to make sure that you're okay, that you have everything you need, that you're able to connect with other people via technology, have any tech issues or whatever. I've heard of stories of people offering tech assistance. In fact, Jonathan Balzora, who was up here uh, singing a few minutes ago, one of our elders, he just last night sent out an instructional manual to all of our other elders for how to get online for our elder meetings this week, which I thought was nice. 
they probably needed it. Uh, I've seen and heard stories about people handwriting cards. I've heard about people standing across the street. So I don't know if you've been out in your neighborhood, but in the governor's orders, he did encourage us to continue to exercise. So there is a provision for walking around a little bit. We got to keep our distance. But as people are walking around, some of you are seeing your neighbors for the first time ever. They've actually come out of their garage. I've heard cool stories this week about people refusing to be idle, but instead having a conversation across the street about hope and about peace and about faith and about love with people they've never met before. We're seeing new and uh, reunified connection between local churches. We ourselves here are working to find ways to bless some of the other churches in our city and in our neighborhoods uh, that maybe don't have the same kind of resources, maybe don't have the same technology we have. It's United Teachers. I was, uh, I was on a conversation this week earlier, uh, this week on Thursday, with about 25 pastors from all over Orange County talking about the different things our churches can be doing and what we can be doing in unity, learning from each other, sharing ideas. Uh, we've been offering assistance to, to local nonprofits and, and the city and anybody else that needs it. What is all of that? Well, it's characteristic of a people, I'm talking about us, who recognize that even though we may be required to be at home, and even though we may be required to use our phones or our laptops or whatever, we will not be idle. We're not going to be lazy. We're not going to sit with our hands in our pockets. I say as I have my hand in my pocket. But we're not going to sit quietly. We will be industrious. We will be creative. I will tell you, church, this season presents a unique opportunity. It's not the first unique opportunity. But this season presents another in a long series of unique opportunities that have happened throughout human history for the church to rise up and paint a brilliant picture of who the Lord Jesus is. Because the Lord Jesus is defined by love and sacrifice and grace and peace and kindness. We have a unique opportunity if we will think creatively about it. I was reminded this week in Hebrews chapter 10, verse 23, where it says, let us hold fast the confession of our hope without wavering. When we've got that hope, right? Confident expectation. Let us hold fast the confession of our hope without wavering, for he who promised is faithful. And let us consider how to stir up one another to love and good works, not neglecting to meet together as is the habit of some, but encouraging one another and all the more as you see the day drawing near. We are meeting together. We're not meeting together in this room, but we are meeting together over our phones and over our laptops and across the streets, right? We're meeting together right now via live stream. We are remembering the hope that we have in Christ, the fact that our God is faithful, and we are allowing that hope to stir us to figure out how to take the peace we have internally and radiate it out to our neighbors. And in the midst of refusing to be idle, right, we also have the opportunity to walk in step, to march in order, and paint an accurate picture of what the Lord Jesus and his church are actually like. You see, the government can force behavioral change. And in fact, this, this week and last week they have. The government can enforce uh, behavioral change, but only the church, by the power of the Holy Spirit and the model of the Lord Jesus Christ, only the church can amplify our culture's capacity for love and sacrifice. The governor can make us stay home. The governor can make us be careful of what we do and where we go and how we're washing our hands and whatever. He, he can change behavior but the government is not going to be able to increase our culture's capacity for love and peace and grace and sacrifice. You know where that increase in capacity will come from? It will come from the Lord Jesus through his body. That's us. We have a unique opportunity to not be idle, 
but instead to be faithful and industrious. We're not just being the church like we were before. We've had this conversation a lot this week in our staff meetings and whatever over over the internet. We don't just want to be the same church we were, but online now, and maybe not as good, right? We don't just want to be doing the same things, but online and not as good. We want to use this opportunity to go, how do we paint an even better picture of what Christ is like? How do we march an even closer step with one another so that a more accurate picture of the Lord Jesus is revealed? Paul in 2 Thessalonians looks at the church and he says, I've heard that there are some of you who were marching out of step. There are some of you who are idle. And he looks at them and says, hey, Knock it off. Get busy, right? He looks at those directly. He calls them brothers and he says, get busy so that your mind and your body will be occupied with worthwhile endeavors instead of being nosy and meddling and parasitic. Then he looks at the church. Back to 2 Thessalonians chapter three. He looks at the church and we see this in verses 14 and 15. Well, in 13 also, he says, as for you, brothers, do not grow weary in doing good. That's an interesting thing to drop in there. We're maybe reminded of Galatians 6 where it says, don't grow weary in doing good for you will reap a harvest in due season if you don't give up. Here, he says, do not grow weary in doing good. He's talking to us, the church. And then he says this, if anyone does not obey what we say in this letter, Take note of that person and have nothing to do with him that he may be ashamed. Do not regard him as an enemy, but warn him as a brother. It couples really well with what he's already said in 6 where he says, Now we command you, brothers, in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, that you keep away from any brother who is walking in idleness or disorder and not in accord with what you've been taught. Here he looks at the church and he says, keep doing good. And then he says, in order to do that, you have to distance yourself in some ways from those who are painting a false picture of who Christ is, from those who are walking out of step. Now that, that part might be really difficult for you to hear, although we're, we're sort of uh, in, you know, distanced by other, other designs. But I want you to understand what Paul is emphasizing here. What he's saying is that it's actually a good thing for us to correct one another as brothers and sisters. Sometimes we feel like correcting one another is awkward, right? When we tell other people, hey, you gotta, you gotta get busy and stop being a busybody. You need to stop meddling. I, I, uh, I think sometimes we feel like we're almost being pushy to look at our brothers and sisters in Christ and say, hey, you're, you're painting a false picture of who Jesus is. But Paul here is saying that in, in order to actually do good, part of that process is correcting where we see people are out of step. Jesus said something similar Um, in, In Matthew chapter 18, verse 15, Jesus says, if your brother sins against you, go and tell him his fault between you and him alone. And if he listens to you, you have gained your brother. What's Jesus's focus there? Is it just setting the smack down on somebody who's wrong? No, the goal is to gain your brother back, to draw people back into the family. So here Paul says, if someone is idle or out of step, if they're painting a false picture of who Jesus and his church are intended to be, He says, have nothing to do with them. Well, when we get this idea of have nothing to do with them, that's hard to do when he also says, don't treat them like an enemy, treat them like a brother. We don't don't have nothing to do with our family. Especially these days, we have a lot to do with our family. So what's he talking about here? He's not talking about completely ostracizing that person or or holding them at arm's length. That's something you would do with an enemy. What he is talking about here, the the word here where he says, um, he says, have nothing to do with them. A better translation would be have no intimate association with them. Have no intimate association with those who are out of line. Someone who will not work, you correct them. He says, take, take note of them. So have a list of the people who are marching out of step. Take note of them. I've got a list right here of some people in our church. So I just want to read off this list really quick of some names. No, I'm just kidding. I'm not going to do that. That would be funny, though. Um, I don't even have that list. May, should I shake the phone? Make it laugh? Um, 
No, he says, take note of them. You have to have a sense of who they are. He says, take note of them, cease intimate association so that they will feel it. I think maybe some of you feel uncomfortable with the idea of shaming them, right? He says, take note of them, have nothing to do with them, that they may may be ashamed. What he's saying is they should feel a sense of disregard. It doesn't mean the kind of shame that we would want to avoid. It's not saying you're a bad person or you're a piece of junk or whatever. It's saying we want the people who are out of step, the people who are out of order, the people who are idle and loafing and and just sort of uh, parasitic, we want them to feel that disassociation and that disregard so that it catalyzes them and moves them back into step. Does that make sense? I remember um, I was with my doctor once when I first moved to Long Beach. I've told some of you this story before, but when I first moved to Long Beach, I had my intake uh, interview with my new doctor. This was in 2009. And uh, he, he's asking me all these questions. He asked me about my medical history and, you know, people sick in my family or whatever. And then he gets to a place where he's like, tell me about your hobbies and whatever. And I said, well, I like to read and I like to play video games. I like to watch movies. I like to go to concerts. I, uh, I you know, I mean, I, I don't know. I, I, I'm just a kind of guy. I love art and music and whatever. And, he, and he's writing on a clipboard. He goes, so you're what we'd call a, uh, a sedentary lifestyle. Now, here's the thing. At the time, I didn't know what that word meant. Uh, the word sedentary. Maybe you don't know what it means. And so I just told him that I was into art and music and video games and literature and movies and stuff. So I just assumed the word sedentary meant like artistically minded, you know? So the doctor, he looks at me and goes, oh, you're what we'd call a sedentary lifestyle. And this was my response. I went, yeah, thanks doctor. I mean, I, I guess you could say that if you want, right? Because I thought he was saying something uh, complimentary about me. It wasn't until I got home that I looked that word up on Wikipedia or whatever. I'm like, sedentary? I don't know what that means. I looked it up. And in, in the dictionary, it says, sedentary is a lifestyle defined by inactivity. And then in parentheses, it said, couch potato, right? <laughs> so get this, I'm sitting with my new doctor. It's like the first interview I've had with him. I tell him all these things about me that I think are great. And he essentially looks at me and goes, oh, well, you're, you're what in the medical field we would term as a couch potato. And instead of me being like, oh no, like I got to get on the treadmill or whatever. Instead, I'm like, yeah, doc, I appreciate you noticing. I am that couch potato. Thank you so much. And uh, I'm doing my best. I got to be honest with you, right? It was so embarrassing. What was he trying to do? He was trying to catalyze me back into line. In some ways, he was trying to provoke me. It would have been, because of my you know, vocabulary, it would have been better if he just called me a couch potato. But he says, when, when there are those who are idle or who are out of step, you have to take note of them. You have to, uh, you have, to have nothing to do with them or to disregard them that they may feel shamed. Not as an enemy, remember, but as a brother, to draw them back in. That shame is simply a disregard. It's worth noting here that this admonition is not just for the idol, but for those who would be tempted to excuse or tolerate it. Does that make sense? So he isn't just admonishing the idol in this text. He's also looking at us, the church, and saying, if you turn a blind eye to people who are not working, who are not united in sacrifice, who are not making a contribution, if you turn a blind eye to that, then you also need to be admonished. You have to pay attention to those who are painting a false picture of Christ in their activity. And instead, admonish them disregard them in some way so they feel that distance as a brother and are drawn back in. There is a call for us in this season and in every season to never just hit the sidelines, to never be dependent upon the work of other people. I think that's easy in a church culture. We can even look and go, well, we got all these pastors, we got all these leaders, we got community pastors, we got all these shepherds, we got all these different people. They'll do the work and I can just kind of sit back and coast. It speaks to what Christina was talking about earlier with this entertainment culture, right? 
We don't want to be people who sit back. Each and every one of us want to be marching in file. Both being industrious and faithful and hardworking in the work of the mission, in the communication of the gospel, in the administration of love, and in working quietly with our hands and being diligent so that we can make a contribution. Even in a time of quarantine, even in a time of staying at home, that we would be thinking creatively that we would be thinking proactively about how to paint an even better picture of Jesus in this season. Paul closes his letter this way with a, a final benediction. Verse 16, he says, Now may the Lord of peace himself give you peace at all times in every way. At all times in every way. I don't know who all is watching the live stream, but I know for a fact that there are some of you who feel a lack of peace. He isn't just saying, I hope you have peace during the hour that you're watching a live stream of your church service. He's saying, I'm praying that the Lord of peace, the, the peace master is what he calls Jesus here. I'm praying that the peace master will give you peace at all times in every way. That's, that's huge. He says, I'm praying that the Lord of peace himself will give you peace at all times in every way. The Lord be with you all. He prays for them not only the peace of God in every way at all times, but the presence of Christ to be made manifest among them. You feel lonely? Some of you may be stuck in a place where you're truly all by yourself. He prays for them that the Lord would be with them. It's beautiful. He reminds them that he himself is writing this with his own hand because there's already been an issue of people purporting to be him. And then he closes here in 18. The grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with you all. In his closing benediction of this verse where he's giving them comfort, where he's reminding them to be a people of good hope and radiant peace, in the midst of persecution, in the midst of false teaching, in the midst of the temptation to not make a contribution and therefore to fall out of step. He says, I'm praying that the peace master will give you peace at all times in every way. That Jesus will be with you in a physical way. And that the grace of God will be yours. Peace and presence and grace is his prayer for them. And it's our prayer for you and I hope it's your prayer for me. I want to finish this morning by reading uh, in, a, in a letter I got actually last week. There was a pastor who had mentioned uh, a section out of the Heidelberg Catechism. I don't know if you're familiar with the Heidelberg Catechism. It might be a, a good process in the midst of this, uh, this time of being in isolation to start memorizing some things like this. But one section of the Heidelberg Catechism answers this question. The question is, what is your only hope in life and death? What is your only hope in life and death? And this is the answer. That I am not my own, but belong with body and soul, both in life and in death, to my faithful Savior, Jesus Christ. He has fully paid for all my sins with his precious blood and has set me free from all the power of the devil. He also preserves me in such a way that without the will of my heavenly Father, not a hair can fall from my head. Indeed, all things must work together for my salvation. Therefore, by his Holy Spirit, he also assures me of eternal life and makes me heartily willing and ready from now on to live for him. I think what Paul is speaking against here at the end of 2 Thessalonians is a lack of this hearty willingness, an idleness or a disorder that paints a false picture of Christ. But when we remember who Jesus is and what he has done, when we remember who he has said we are and what that association and that faith affords us, then we have the ability to be empowered by his Holy Spirit to be heartily willing and ready 
to live for him, both in our mission work, both in our distribution of love, and our industrious work to make a contribution and to paint a true and accurate picture of what the Lord Jesus and his church are really like. Would you pray with me this morning? God, I pray that you would stir in us a fresh remembrance of who you are. That you are a God who did not serve himself, did not grasp onto his godhood, but made himself nothing, took the form of a servant, humbled himself to the point of death on a cross, that at your name every knee would bow and every tongue confess that you were Lord to the glory of God the Father. God, I pray that you would remind us this morning not to be idle, not to be disorderly in the sense of stepping out of alignment with the picture that you're trying to paint. God, in the places where we ourselves see an idleness starting to seep in, would you admonish us? Would you draw us to work quietly with our hands, to be industrious and diligent to paint an accurate picture of you? And as a church, would you help us to come alongside one another, not as enemies, but as brothers, to help each and every one of us get back in step, no matter what our circumstances, no matter what's happening in the world around us. We depend upon you for our life and breath, for our health. God, we pray that you would help us to live lives that paint an accurate picture of you as we radiate peace that's rooted in our confident expectation of who you are. We pray that in Christ's name, amen.